0: Um, if you want to get your Bibles out, it's Ezra chapter 8, and you'll have to forgive me because I'm not going to read out all the names. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phineas Gershom, of the sons of Ithamor Daniel of the sons of David, Hattish. And we'll continue on to verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Jehovah, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jareb, Elmethan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Mishulam. Leading men, and for Jorib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Ido, the leading man in the place of Caciphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants in the place of Caciphia, namely to send ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion the sons of Malai, the sons of Levi, son of Israel, namely, Sherebiah and his son and king's men. Also, Hashabiah, and with him, Jesusiah, the sons of Meriah, and with his king's men and their sons, 20, besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahaba that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for our good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counsellors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver, and silver vessels worth 200 talents, and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth a 1,000 darrocks, and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and Levites took over the weight of silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahab on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, with, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merrimoth the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites. Josaphat, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Biniai, the whole, the whole was counted and weighed, And the weight of everything was reported. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Fiona. Why don't I pray for us again before we get going in Ezra, chapter 8. Lord, as we read this text, it probably does seem very strange to us, names that are foreign to us, places that are unfamiliar to us. But even in that, um, we we just ask, Lord, that this morning you would take your Word and speak to us, show us in your Word uh, your glory, your goodness towards us, uh, how the gospel applies, Lord, to our lives today. We pray that we would see Jesus and, and treasure Him all the more deeply this morning. We ask for your help and your blessing, Lord. Amen. Uh, I heard this quote before at a conference I was at: leadership is the capacity to take a vision and translate that vision into reality. Leadership is the capacity to take a vision and translate that vision into reality. It's true, isn't it? Seeing an idea through to actual activity, that's the real test of leadership. Because whether it's in business, or whether it's in the sporting arena, or whether it's in church ministry, whatever it is, there will always be obstacles and many challenges to overcome in taking a vision, a big idea, and seeing that vision become a reality. And I say that as we get going this morning because I think this is the test of of Ezra's leadership here in Ezra chapter 8. Last week in Ezra chapter 7, we were introduced to the man Ezra, the man behind this book, uh, and we saw what kind of man he, he was And we saw the big vision that Ezra had for the people of God back in Jerusalem. Remember in chapter 7 verse 10, it kind of summarized it there. It says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That was what Ezra had set his heart to do. And yet, What we see in the rest of Ezra chapter 7 is that Ezra wasn't content just to head back to Jerusalem on his own as this kind of one-man teaching institution where he could teach whoever in Jerusalem was going to listen to him. That's not what his plan was. He wanted to establish a comprehensive system of religious instruction and governance and discipline according to the word of God. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted God's law not just to be taught to the people, but he wanted God's law to be the very basis, the guide, the very foundations upon the whole life of their community of Israel upon which it was built. Ezra was a man with a plan, a grand plan, a God given plan. And it was it was a vision to see God's people in God's place, living under God's rule, in obedience to his word, and experiencing his blessing. And Ezra believed in that vision so much that he was willing to go to the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes, and ask him for permission to embark on this grand work. He asked the king for his blessing to gather the resources that they needed, to gather the people that were needed, the materials that were needed. He asked for the king's blessing to go on this great journey, and he asked for the king's blessing to then govern the people of Israel according to God's law. It was a big request to gather, to go, and to govern. And we saw last week with John that Artaxerxes, he was very enthusiastic about all this, so much so that Ezra 7, 6 tells us that the king granted him all that he asked for. So Ezra, he has this calling on his life. He has this God-given vision to go and carry out the task that God has laid upon him. And now he has the royal green light to go and to carry out his plan. All he has to do is go forward and implement what God has laid upon his heart. He's the leader who has to take this grand plan and make it a reality. But as we're going to see in Ezra chapter 8, that's much easier said than done. There were many challenges that stood before him. Uh, as the leader of these people. And this morning what I want to do is just go through Ezra chapter 8 and I want us to look at these challenges together uh, and look at the way Ezra faces these challenges and then ultimately show us how Ezra responds when those challenges are overcome. So, Ezra chapter 8, it it starts in a familiar kind of way, doesn't it? With a big long list of names. We didn't read them all this morning, but he seems to to love a a list of names, Ezra. And, And this list of names... They were the people who Ezra had rallied and who had really listened to the call to return to their land. Now, just to remind you, this is the the second wave of returnees to Jerusalem. So we've seen already in Ezra chapters 1 to 6, the kind of first part of of this story, that first wave of returnees. They've gone back, about 50,000 Jews, under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And they've settled in the towns and villages in Judah, They've come to the city of Jerusalem, and over a period of about 20 years, with on-again, uh, off-again building, they've rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And now here is Ezra, about 60 years later than that, and he's gathering together a second wave of people to return back, not to rebuild the, the city or the temple, but in essence, his calling is to rebuild the people of God through the word of God. God. And as he gathered this second wave, we noticed right from the get-go, maybe you didn't notice it, but this is much, much smaller than the first returnees. This time there's only about 5,000 people who've signed up to go back. We don't know the reason why. Maybe the people were just quite comfortable with the life that they had in Babylon. Maybe they weren't up for the hardships of the journey that we're going to see that lay ahead. Or perhaps they just thought that they weren't really up for for what life might be like back in the promised land. The evidence is here that most of the Jews living in the Persian Empire said, you know, life is better where we are. We don't envision a better life for ourselves back in Jerusalem, and so they didn't go. Now, saying all that, there are a couple of things worth noticing about this list. The reason we read verses 1 and 2 is because I think the most noteworthy things are there. There are two people who are from the line of priests, Gershom and Daniel. Now, that's important. And there's one individual who was from the royal line of David. You see, that son of David, Hattush, which again is something that's really important because it shows that the royal line from David is continuing, not as kings in their day, but to see one coming in the future who would be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. See, God was still keeping his promises to his people even when they were in exile. And we knew that God still does that for us today. He keeps his promises to us. The rest of that list that we didn't read, that's a, a list of the 12 family groups that were ready to make the journey back. Now, the number 12 is really significant in the Bible, and it's significant here because what it does is it represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And throughout the Bible, what we see is that number 12 functioning as a representative of the fullness of God's people. So, what we have here in this list, three things. Ezra it is reminding the people of the priesthood and the kingship and the fullness of God's people. But yet, as we read it, and I'm sure Ezra kind of felt this way as he reviewed this group of people, it's still a pretty small and meager number willing to return. Now, everyone knows that when you head on a long journey, there's usually some kind of hiccup along the way. If you've done any kind of traveling, uh, any long-distance traveling, maybe it's bags getting lost, maybe it's sickness along the way, maybe it's missed flights or delays. Uh, There's often hiccups on long journeys for us because there are now kids involved in our journeys, Uh, and there were kids involved in this journey, but, but it's not the kids' fault this time. Ezra says it's the Levites' fault. That's the fault, or that's the reason for the hiccup. Because we read in verse 15, Ezra gathers the people and he reviews them and he found that there were no families from the tribe of Levi joining Ezra for this work. Now, why is that such a big deal? Why does that matter? Well, the Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what we see in the Old Testament is that they were set apart by God to do the work of God in the temple. (laughs) All the priests were Levites, but not all the Levites were priests. And there were lots of of duties associated with temple work, uh, which were actually beyond kind of those usual priestly uh, offering of sacrifices that we think of. These were kind of varied uh, in, in the duties that they did. The care, the physical structure of the temple, all the things that went on in the life of the temple, they all fell to these people, these Levites. And another thing that was really significant about the Levites was that among all of Israel's tribes, the Levites were entrusted with knowing God's law. They were the ones who were entrusted with teaching God's law to the people and with seeing that the worship of God's people conformed to God's law. So they're really important. And you can see why there's a problem here with not having any Levites in this group. They were essential to the work Ezra planned to carry out in Jerusalem. Essential to his vision being able to be implemented on the ground. Coming from kind of vision to reality. He needed the Levites. But there wasn't any there. We don't know the reason why. But we know that there wasn't any. And here's one of the great obstacles I think Ezra faced in taking his vision and seeing it through to reality. It's this kind of apathy. This... Lack of willingness from God's people to participate in God's work. And this isn't a challenge unique to Ezra's day, is it? It's often what God's people, what the church has experienced throughout history. It's often what we see in the church now. Didn't Jesus say to his disciples in Matthew 9, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So what does Ezra do about all this? Well, look at verse 16. First thing he does is he gathers together these leaders, uh, these leading men. And in particular, he gathers two men, uh, Jorabai and Elnathan, men of insight. Now that phrase, men of insight, it, it really particularly is referring to men who understood God's word. They were men who knew the scriptures, who understood the word of God. And look what Ezra does with these men. He gathers them together, and then he sends them to Ido, The leading man at the place Cassiphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Cassiphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. Now, we basically know nothing about this man Edo or about that place Cassiphia, but it does seem that there was some kind of Levitical community there. And possibly this man Edo was like a principal or a head of a training center for Levites. Whatever we look at it, whatever way we look at it, he's an important man. He's a man of influence, a man who can help. And so Ezra gathers these wise, godly men to himself and he talks to them about what they're going to say. And then Ezra makes this direct appeal to them through these men to give this community a chance to respond to God's call, to come and serve God and his people in this way. And what we see is, by God's grace and the working of God's power, the good hand of God was upon them, it says in verse uh, 22. And this community then, they send two family units of Levites, along with 220 temple servants who would attend the work of those Levites. Now, it's a lot of information. And What does any of that have to do with us? Well, I think one application is this. There's lots of work to be done in the church lots of kingdom work to be done, but the reality often is, as Jesus describes it, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So what do we do? What do we do as elders in the church or as the people who are kind of leading in the church, leading ministries within the church? How do we encourage people to respond to the Lord's call, to worship Him through serving Him and His people? Well, I think Ezra gives us a good example of what to do here. Firstly, look at what he doesn't do, which is often what I tend to do. He doesn't despair. He doesn't pull his hair out about not having any Levites. He doesn't get puffed up with, with pride, saying, am I, am I the only Levite around, he, around here who cares? Where's everyone else? Why couldn't more people be like me? That's not what he does. Instead... He gets wise and godly counsel and through those people he appeals to others to join in the work. And I think there's something for us to learn in this. We should be willing, trusting in the Lord to make an appeal to people. Not rooted in guilt or manipulation, but rooted in the simple reality that there is gospel work that needs to be done through the people of God. And we need more people to do it more people to serve, to be part of God's work. We do this totally dependent on God, on him to move hearts, on him to convict and to challenge. I think it's clear in the text that's what Ezra is doing here. Because what we see is that when these men and these families and temple servants, they respond to the call, he immediately attributes this response to the work of God in them. It's not because of the force or the cleverness or the winsomeness of his appeal that these people step forward. But he says, it was the good hand of the Lord upon us. God provided for our needs. Hudson Taylor, he's a great missionary, and he once said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's provision. What was it that Jesus' next words were to his disciples In Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray then. That was his next instruction. Pray then to the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into his harvest field. Don't get flustered. Don't get frustrated. Don't get full of pride. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And in faith and independence on the Lord of the harvest, let's not be afraid to actually ask people to come and join in the work. So when we as as a church or as elders get up here and we say we need more people to volunteer in kids ministry or or, or that we we want more people to, to consider maybe serving here on a Sunday in the various ministries that we have, serving tea and coffee, running our audio and visuals during the service, being part of the hospitality team, Or when we say to people uh, that we would love them to consider maybe church planting or what kind of foreign, uh, going across the world, to foreign mission might look like for them. We're not trying to guilt anyone into service. We're not trying to twist anyone's arm. No, we're just making the appeal and trusting the Lord to move in the hearts of his people. The harvest is plentiful and the, the laborers are few. So we ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Well, having uh, these internal challenges he's faced within the group, Ezra then is facing a new set of external challenges in trying to implement his vision. And the challenge was actually making this journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. Because it was a journey of around 1,000 miles. It would have taken about four months. They would have been traveling in the heat of summer traveling on foot with families and children, and also traveling with a really significant amount of wealth that King Artaxerxes had given to them for the sacrifices in the temple. This was going to be no easy journey. They were a a, a massive target, vulnerable to people who who maybe would want to uh, rob them, to ambush them. That was a really common thing to happen in journeys like this back in the ancient Near East. And so Ezra knew that the work ahead was dangerous, that they would be vulnerable and it would be difficult. So what does Ezra do? Well, it's clear from what we read that he doesn't think it's appropriate for him to ask for a military escort. You see that in verse 22. Now, we need to understand this because there's nothing wrong with him having asked for a military escort. He could have done that. We're going to read it later in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9, that when Nehemiah returns with the third wave of exiles, he was accompanied by the king's officers in the army and horsemen. So there's nothing wrong in and of itself to ask for help like this. Ezra had, had obviously already asked for the king's permission and his blessing on many fronts. And at the end of the chapter, when they arrive back in the land, what we see them do is that they distribute the king's commission to all the local governors and satraps to make sure that they know that they have come, these people, with the king's blessing. So what's clear is that it's not, that's not the problem. That's not why Ezra has, has not asked for this help. But Ezra, in his conscience, he doesn't feel like he can ask the king for an armed escort because he's already told the king something. Look what he says. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. That's a big statement of faith, isn't it? And I think Ezra felt he needed to demonstrate his faith and really demonstrate the power of the Lord to to the king, even to the people as well, to demonstrate that the Lord was able to deliver and to protect his people. And so he decided to do that by not relying on earthly provision or power from the king. So what did he and the people do instead? Well, look at verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. So we fasted, verse 23, and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. They came before the Lord in desperate, humble prayer. And the text says God listened to their cries and he answered their prayers. We're going to think a little bit more about this in a moment because this, I think, is is key to this whole chapter. But I want you to notice as well that what comes after this, in in addition to their prayers, they also decide to take responsible action. You see, they're trusting in the sovereignty of God, but they also take human responsibility seriously as well. That's what we see in verses 24 to 30. They, They weigh out all the silver and gold that they have. And then what Ezra does is he charges the priests to guard it until they weigh it out again in Jerusalem. He says to them, this is holy work you've been given by God. And these men, he says, you've been set apart for this holy service. And now he was commanding them to kind of render that service in this particular way. And in the end, what happens is through the prayers of God's people, through the responsible and diligent work of Ezra and these priests, and because the good and gracious hand of God was on his people, the people arrived in Jerusalem with everyone and everything intact. God protected them from enemy and from ambush. The priests guarded the gold and silver, and now they had arrived and were ready to present it all to the Lord and to really start the work that God had called them to do in Jerusalem. So again... As we read this, we might be wondering what does any of this have to do with us? Well, I think there are a few things. One one application is this when we set out to do the work the Lord has called us to do, when we actually respond to his call and workers enter the harvest field, often the work is hard. The work is, is costly. Often the, the Lord's workers are vulnerable and exposed to the attacks of the enemy. We're often vulnerable and exposed emotionally, spiritually, even physically. There's real opposition in this world to the faithful work of God's people. And it can be challenging. It can be frightening even at times, disconcerting. And so what do we do? What do we do when we face these challenges? Well, when I think about myself and my response, I'm often not like Ezra and the people here. What I often do is respond in one of two ways. Maybe I descend into kind of despair. Maybe you're like me. I often turn from the Lord and look for help and deliverance and comfort from other things and not from Him. We see throughout the Old Testament that's something that the people of God often did when they were faced with these challenges. They were clamoring uh, for the help and and for the the strength and deliverance of foreign kings, begging for their protection and help rather than trusting in the Lord and his promises. But how often I do the same thing. It might look so different to me now, but I go chasing after worldly forms of protection and comfort and security because I, I think, I believe that the Lord is not enough. I doubt whether he can actually give me what I need. And the other thing I I do is, is often just lose heart and give up, lose hope. Not just I'm not sure if it's worth it anymore. We end up retreating from the work altogether. We give up the work the Lord has given us to do because it's just too difficult, too costly. You see what we we learn from Ezra here in his response? Here is a man who depends on the Lord. His faith is tested in many ways, isn't it? But he shows that he is a man who really trusts in the Lord's provision, that the Lord's hand will be on those who seek him. He's desperate for the Lord's hand to be upon him and the people. And we, like him, must turn to the Lord for our help for our comfort, for our courage, for our strength, for deliverance. We turn to him in in deliberate and desperate prayer. That's what we see the people doing here in chapter 8. Like them, we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. That's what fasting is all about. Fasting is a way of denying ourselves what we need in an immediate way so that we can become more aware of our own human need, our own human frailties of our weakness, of how desperately we need the Lord's help in our lives. Fasting fasting is often what fuels this kind of authentic, desperate prayer, where we cry out to God and we say, God, we need you. We need you for life and for protection. We need you if we're going to bear any good fruit in this life. We need you if we're going to be sustained and empowered every day in following you on this earth. We need you if we're going to be successful in any kind of the the endeavors we do as a church. We need you to intervene in these difficult situations in our lives, in our church, in our community. We need you to accomplish your work and your plans in us and through us. We need you to bless us, to keep us, to deliver us. We are totally dependent on you And John talked about this a little bit at the start, didn't he, in our call to worship. This is what it looks like to to be poor in spirit. Growing and becoming more mature in the the Christian life is not about being like my three-year-old Ruby, who at the moment, everything is, I do it myself, I want to do it. She wants to be in charge. She wants to put her coat on. She wants to put her shoes on. Everything is about what she wants to do. But growing and maturing in the Christian life is not about becoming more independent, more self-sufficient, self-reliant. No, growing and becoming mature in the Christian life is becoming more dependent on Christ, more reliant on Him. And you know, this is it's an unsettling thing. It's a challenging thing because everything within us wants to hold on to control. Everything within us, the pride within us, wants to do things for ourselves. That's not the way that leads to life. To deeper intimacy with Jesus Christ. We want this year to, to learn and to grow in being a church who depend on the Lord for all things. That's why we're spending this year devoting ourselves to praying as a church. It's not just for a year, but it's about learning this practice, growing in our intimacy and our dependency on the Lord. Because we want to be a people who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. We want to be a church that truly believes that when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, he means nothing. Not some things. Nothing. Unless the Lord is the one building the house, unless he is the one building and his hand is upon us, then we will be laboring in vain. We don't want to do that. Let's make our first ministry as a church to humble ourselves before God in prayer this year. And in faith, bathed in prayer, we can then do what we see Ezra and the people do here we can take responsible and faithful action in all the work God has given us to do. We can say our prayers and we can get to work trusting the Lord, knowing that the hand of our God is, on, or is for good for those who seek him. That doesn't mean that, that God will always answer our prayers the way we want or we expect. It doesn't mean that he'll always give us the things that we think that we need. But it does mean that we can trust in his goodness and his grace. That we can believe Psalm 84 when it says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God knows our every need this morning. Whether in life, whether it's in ministry, and he will provide for our needs. And if if you find yourself doubting that, which I know I often do, Paul says in Romans 8, look to Jesus Look to his son. He is the ultimate proof that God will provide for your every need. Because listen to what Paul says He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? As we finish, look with me at what the people did when they arrived safely in Jerusalem. How did they respond? to overcoming all these obstacles on their journey. How did they respond when they arrived in the land God had promised? Their first response was to worship the Lord. That's what we see in verse 35. They offered whole burnt offerings to the Lord and sin offerings to the Lord. They responded by confessing their sin, which seems strange. They offered these sacrifices for sin... They offered sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. They were saying, thank you to God for what he had done. And it was this kind of recognition of God's kindness towards them. That's what led them to confession and repentance. Do you see that? God has been so good to them that they realize what they are really like. They realize how good he really is. They confess their sin to him and they praise him. He is the God of salvation. He is the God who delivers his people. It was his gracious provision and protection which led them to the land that he had promised. And as much reason as these returned exiles had to praise the Lord, don't we have even more this morning? This is what we, we celebrate each week as we, as we gather as we sing praise to God, as we sit under his word, as we come to the table. We come to the table as followers of Jesus Christ in the knowledge that God has done great things for us. We can say in faith like Ezra, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. Because, you know, when we didn't seek him, he sent his son Jesus Christ to come and to find us. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost because what we had done is we had forsaken God. We had turned away from him. What we deserved was the power of God's wrath to be upon us. That's what the people even deserved here for the countless times that they had turned away from him, not trusted in him. But look what God did for them. He protected them, he provided for them, and he saved them. He's done the same for us through his son, Jesus Christ. See, when we didn't want God, when we didn't offer ourselves to his service, when we didn't turn to him, when we didn't depend on him, he sent Jesus to be our savior. When the work of our salvation needed to be done, when no one else could do it, Jesus offered himself as our great high priest. Jesus offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. When you read verse 22, see Jesus in verse 22. Jesus is the one who has been completely faithful and obedient to God in all of his ways. Trusted the will of his Father. Never once sinned or deviated from God's will. He's the one who was seeking God. But you know, he did it on our behalf. And even more than that, he is the one who experienced the power of God's wrath. He was the one that on the cross was forsaken by his father, even though he never forsook his father. But he did it all so that we could be the ones, in verse 22, who have the good and gracious hand of the Lord upon us forever. We come to the table this morning confessing our unworthiness, confessing that that we are at times apathetic. Those who who are unwilling to give ourselves to worship the Lord, to give ourselves to to serve him. But we come to the table knowing that in Jesus Christ, God has forgiven us. That God has, has laid his gracious and good hand upon us. Not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. And in Jesus Christ, he has saved us and delivered us. And you know, as we come to the table, it's a reminder that God by his grace is changing us, changing our hearts to live for him, to desire to be close to him, to serve him. And so as we come to the table this morning, we confess our sin. Yes, but we praise him for what he has done and for what he is doing in us. We're going to come to the table as followers of Jesus Christ this morning, and let's come to the table with that spirit of of kind of poverty, confessing our sin, but also knowing that God is good, that God is good towards those who seek him, that God's hand is upon those who, who seek him, and let's delight and praise him for what he has done. Would you stand with me, and I'm going to pray. Lord, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you're gracious towards those who seek you. Lord, we come seeking you this morning, but we know that the only reason we can do that is because of what you you have first done for us. The only way that we we can love and serve you is to recognize that you first loved and served us. You gave yourself for us. Lord, I pray that we would just remember that this morning. That as we come to the table and we reflect on, on what this meal signifies and represents, that we would rejoice in the fact that you're a God who came for your people. To, to be that, that priest, Jesus Christ, that once uh, and forever priest who, who would... Uh, Provide the sacrifice for his people that that nothing else ever could, that no one else ever could. You've done the work for us, Jesus. We thank you that we can rest in your finished work. Lord, as we come to you this morning, I pray that we would be reminded that in Jesus we are forgiven, that in Jesus we are being made new. And Lord, that we would come, yes, with that kind of spirit of, of poverty, of neediness, but also, Lord, that we be lifted, lifted and, and that we would see that you've set us upon a rock, you've saved us, Save us so that we can live for you and serve you. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done. Thank you that your good hand is on those who seek you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Mm-hmm. Amen. Let's come to the table.